All right, Baruch Hashem Yahweh, bless the name of Yahweh. Let's turn to Romans, Romia, chapter 16 already. The last chapter, unless we come up with like an extra book or chapter not found. And you know, we did that, I think I said that last week as I went into the, the lost chapter of the book of Marseh Shlechim, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. But I fear there is no 17th chapter I am going to spring on you today. We are at the last chapter of Romans chapter 16. But as we go into this chapter, it is easy to buzz through it. There's a bunch of names that we have to be very careful that we pronounce them correctly. Um, A lot of names. But really, it's like as Paul is communicating to his audience in Rome, the congregations in the vicinity of Rome, there's going to be, if we pay attention to the names, the people that have helped him, that have been with him, whether they have been the the letter carrier um, or those that have been in chains, in prison. We start to look at the names and it's like all of the actors in this whole drama set in the first century come into light. So it's more than a cursory read if we really start to pay attention to the rest of the scriptures, to the names, the language, and of course, the culture and the context of this letter to the saints in Rome. So let's begin delving right in. We're going to come across, of course, Phoebe. Phoebe, as we come into Romans chapter 16 and verse 1, I commend you to Phoebe, our Israelite sister, who is a deacon. She's a deacon of the congregation that is in Crenchia. Now, this was extremely troublesome for the funky monks of yesteryear in medieval times. How to translate this? You have a woman in leadership. She's a deacon in the congregations. That's a major problem for the monks in medieval times. How did they deal with that? But again, as we go through this last chapter of the book of Romans, we're going to come across a lot of trouble for that male chauvinistic society back in yesteryear because you're going to find out the role of women in the first century church, the first century congregations, was extremely, extremely powerful. And let me just say this from my own personal experience as a man, as a minister. I get to speak to a lot of people um, to be blessed to try and speak into people's lives. But sometimes you can start to have conversations with somebody and you can feel that there is just a tensity, there is a wall that goes up and that you get nowhere. And you see so much um, broken brokenness in marriages and people's relationships and you may have a I may have a wife that would come to me and say oh you know uh, I can't communicate with my husband and you go to try and share and a wall goes up or you go to share with somebody um, at a coffee shop or something and a wall goes up but what I have found I've seen it with my wife I've seen it with many other women in the congregation where I am unable to connect with somebody as a male, a woman that is anointed and walking in her anointing can break through barriers of communication where a man just cannot go. And it is powerful, powerful to see women rising up, communicating the word and leading men leading men into the faith in their homes, in their communities, in their congregations. Women, I have seen more women in the past decade on fire and empowered to serve Yahuwah, and I have seen more idle, lazy men than I care to ever mention. Why is it over the years I've looked out and I've seen a congregation with majority of women seeking after Yahweh, but few and far between do you find men that are empowered and seeking after Yahweh? Why is that? Why is that? Because we have a culture of feminized men. 
That's what we have. You want to look at men running around chasing after pigskin in spandex rather than sitting down and learning the word. That's what you'd rather do. You'd rather do that than come and take your women, your children, your daughters, your wife, your mother, your mother-in-law and lead them in prayer, in worship. So for me to read this 16th chapter, I understand because it's women that I have seen taking the leadership in charge. And that's not something new. It's something from of old because that's what was going on in the first century then as today. But what I want to see is that men and women joining in the awakening of the faith in these days because there is nothing more powerful than a man and a woman co-laboring together as we will see with Priscilla and Aquilus. The power of a husband and wife, brother and sister, a family yoked together, friends in community, a male and a female partnering together, empowered with the gospel message, is a force to be reckoned with. So it's a time to wake up and to step into your anointing because there is neither male or female, slave or free, Greek or Jew, but you are all one in Messiah. Wake up to the anointing because this is powerful as we study the first century congregations. Phobi, a deaconos in the Greek, a deaconos, This role didn't actually appear to be held by any men whatsoever as far as I can see. As I go through the scriptures, we have Phoebe who was a deacon. And we can notice as we go into this chapter 16 that there's 29 names that are listed and a third of them are women. A third of them are women. So, so Paul isn't the despiser of women that some denominations would try and make him out to be. He is certainly not the despiser of women. In fact, this shows us how women were highly valued in leadership in the first century faith in the body of Messiah. Look at verse 2 talking about Phoebe, that you receive her in Yahuwah as becomes Israelite saints, and that you assist her in whatever business she has need of, for she has been a great help to many and to myself also. This, of course, is Paul writing to the Romans. So, Phoebe, we can see, this female has had a very important role as the entrusted deliverer of Paul's letter to the Romans. She was the one that delivered this letter to the Romans with great peril that she would have faced in this grand voyage across the tides, the seas, and, of course, the Roman legions. And she wasn't just the postman. She wasn't just the postman, because she would have been granted significant authority in conveying not only his message to the Romans, but what did he mean? What did Paul mean when he said these words, Phoebe? You spoke to him. He put the letter in your hand. What did he mean? Did he mean this? Or would, I mean, can you see? She wasn't just the postman. So she had a great deal of responsibility that was entrusted to her in a very patriarchal society. In a very patriarchal society. She would have been called upon to explain passages and answer questions that would have arose about the letter. Does that make sense? You'd be like, well, what what did Paul mean when he wrote this, Phoebe? So men in leadership would have been asking her, well, what did did he mean? You were with him. He entrusted you with this message. So this is more than her just delivering the mail. This is far, far more than that. She was more like an ambassador. She was an emissary that the apostle himself had entrusted with a great, great message. Responsibility, just like Jeremiah and Baruch. 
the scribe. This is a huge responsibility that you're going to get this letter out before kings, before leaders. And as you will discover as this chapter wraps up, this is going to be the fool of the republic. This is going to be the fool of the republic. Because you're going to see a whole bunch of people as we go through these names And they are leaving the Roman society and they're following after the risen Savior. The house is falling. The house is falling. The house of the Romans is falling and the house of faith is being raised up. It's it's amazing. Let's continue on. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm excited to be back, excited to be in the Word. There is nothing more empowering than seeing women going forth with the gospel message, bold, speaking into people's lives, praying and going where sometimes barriers have been put up for us men that we're unable to reach because men sometimes don't want to receive from other men. I don't know why that is. Pride. Pride. Right? But a woman can sometimes go in there and disarm a man of his pride and speak right into his very heart. And that's what's needed. If that's what's needed to bring somebody to repentance so that they can follow after the good master, then that is, of course, the role that a woman should take in this particular instance of faith. So we can see that Phoebe is an emissary. She's an ambassador. She was likely a scattered Israelite, a Gentile, because actually her name is associated with the mythology of Apollos. And of course, you can see many of the first century were caught up in all kinds of pagan sun god worship and various Greek and Roman gods. But Galatians 3, chapter 28, really does come into view here as we go into this chapter 16, because there is neither male or female, because Phoebe was a deacon. She was a deacon of the assembly at Crenchia, which of course was one of the two seaports of Corinth. This was a major, major harbor. She was a deacon. Don't let somebody try and diminish it and say, well, she was a deaconess, because no, deaconos in the Greek, it is masculine, it is not feminine. So sometimes they try, well, okay, yes, but she was a deaconess. No, she was a deacon. Okay, because I can't stand that when people then, they'll go, okay, but then they'll still try to diminish the power and the role of Phoebe as a female. She was a deacon, it's male, it's masculine, it is not feminine, she was not a deaconess. Now we can move on, okay? But those types of things just grate at me. They really, can you tell? But they do, just just, just admit it. Just, Just come on, you know? So anyway, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquilus, my helpers in Messiah Yahusha, who have for my life laid down their own necks, for whom not only I give thanks, but also all the congregations of the Israelite nations. Now, Priscilla and Aquila would have been among those Jews that actually were expelled from Rome under the edict of Claudius that I've mentioned many a time during this teaching to the Romans. Priscilla and Aquilus, they would have been Jews that were expelled from Rome under the edict of Claudius, and then they went and worked with Paul when he was in Corinth and in Ephesus. They worked with him and ministered with him. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 18, verse 1, to get a little bit of context. And after these things, this is in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jewish people to leave Rome. See, there's the edict of Claudius. They were kicked out of Rome for close to a decade. 
And during that decade, they connect with Paul. They're co-laboring with him. So they were very well versed in the ways of Yahushua because they had been around the disciples, the peoples that had earlier followed Yahushua, and they understood the call to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel that was scattered abroad. In fact... In fact, a learned Alexandrian Jew who had had the revelation of the Malkitzedic transference from John the Baptist to Yahushua, um, but he was far less familiar with other subjects, was in fact instructed by Priscilla and Aquila. And you can find that if you scan down to the 24th verse in Acts chapter 18. Let's read that just so that you can follow with me. Acts 18 verse verse 24. Now a Jewish man named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man, well versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the master with a fervent spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the facts about Yahushua, while only being acquainted with the immersion of John. He was very familiar with the ministry of John the Baptist, which was a ministry of transferring the Levitical priesthood over to Yahushua as a Malkizedic high priest. That was the ministry of John. He was extremely familiar with that. Verse 26, this man began speaking out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained the way of Yahuwah more accurately. And when Apollos wanted to cross over to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And upon arrival, he greatly helped those who by the grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jewish people in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that the Messiah was indeed Yahushua. Yet he was instructed in the deeper things of Yahushua by Priscilla and Aquila. And of course, as you notice, Priscilla is mentioned before her husband Aquila. And this is most probably due to her being converted before him, maybe even leading him into the faith. Because if she played a more prominent role in congregational life, that would explain her being socially preferred, would it not? She was the one that most probably came to faith earlier, played a more prominent role in congregational life, and actually led her husband into the faith. But she was already quite established as a power broker within the faith community, boldly going out there and walking and proclaiming the gospel message. So I like to empower people. This is definitely a chapter for empowering women in their ministry role. So Priscilla, we can see, very much empowered by the Spirit. Now, going into the translation, the Restoration True Name Edition has verse 4 translated as thus, but also all the congregations of the Israelite nations. Now, other translations have the churches of the Gentiles. Do we have anything else in verse 4? Any other different translations other than the congregations of the Israelite nations or the churches of the Gentiles? Anything else? Okay. Because some will actually try, you have to be very careful, but some will try and use this verse to separate Jews and Gentiles. Like they're two different kind of congregations. We've got a Jewish congregation. Well, they keep the feasts and the Sabbath and they adhere to the food laws. But over here we've got Gentile congregations and they don't have to do that anymore. No, that's not what this verse says. We have to be very careful. There is no separate Gentile church entity, void of Jews, void of anything Jewish like the Sabbath, the feast, and the dietary laws. No, because we know there is one congregational body. We cannot take the text out of context and create a pretext because error begets error and your trump 
trip all over yourselves into the proverbial soup. So we have to be careful because we have to keep it in context with Yahushua's call, which was to go and regather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's one flock coming in, one flock under one shepherd. One shepherd, one flock, one pasture, one household of faith. Let's look at verse Five. So actually, when I, when I look at verse 4, before I jump into verse 5, I see that the Restoration True Name Edition actually does quite capture the translation well if you think about James chapter 1 where it says it's to the what? Twelve tribes of Israel that are still scattered abroad, which means the shepherd has got to gather them in and he's going to send out other shepherds to gather them in. But be careful because there are full shepherds that are going to try and scatter the flock. So we are about bringing in the lost sheep of the house of Israel under the powerful anointing of Messiah. Verse 5. Likewise, greet the congregation that is in their house. Greet my well-beloved Aphantios, who is the first fruits of Achaia to the Messiah. Greet Miriam, who worked very hard for us. Verse 7, greet Andronikos and Junia, or in the Greek, Unias, my relatives and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Messiah before me. So this is very telling. Junia, or in the Greek, Iunia, a woman. Not Junius, a man, as medieval translators would translate. Old-time scholars, old-time scholars considered this figure to be Junius, Junius a male. But today, almost, almost all are in agreement that this is Junior a female. So does any of your translations have this as Junius? What are you using? What translation do we have? What's that? And New American Study Bible, has it still in the male format? Anybody else? What's yours? Same? Yeah. Oh, okay, so you have the female form. So junior, almost all are in agreement today that this is a female. Outstanding among the apostles, meaning... We have a female apostle, a female apostle, a sent out female apostle. And we can see here that Andronikos was also a woman. So Junior, as a female apostle, this was what? This was anathema to medieval copyists. This was totally anathema to, we can't have a female apostle. So they, of course, changed it to Junius, a male instead. Uh, But Junius did not exist before medieval copyists got hold of the text. So you have to watch out for those funky monks by candlelight and soot. Because they got up to some shady stuff. They really did. And we're still, still got the consequences with us today. We truly, truly do. And you've got to be careful of those tough white South African males as well. Because the, um, the scriptures, I think it's called the um, Institute for Scriptural Research. That's a very prevalent translation in the Messianic or Hebrew Roots version translated in South Africa, of course, they have it as junior a male. But, you know, we've, you know, I used to go to school with some tough white South Africans. So, you know, they're a little bit, you know, slower at coming back to liberating women and, you know, emancipating the black man, you know. I mean, it's just, you know, things uh, took a little bit longer there to get, get over some of the bad things that uh, have kept people in chains and shackles. You had a question? Oh, the King Jimmy has Junior. So that would refer back to a female. 
Correct, correct. So that's even, oh, that's good. That's in the King James Version. We have junior. So yeah, I was just having a little dig at the white South African males there. Um, Sorry about that. But that is the Institute for Scriptural Research. That translation needs to be changed and updated to, um, of course, junior a female so now let's look in fact you can cross-reference this just for a bit of fun with luke chapter 8 verse 3 we could do a little bit of digging and we'd find that joanna of course would be um, hebraically joanna or in the greek ionia the wife of kuza herod's finance minister Susanna and many others were supporting them out of their own resources this is what it says in Luke chapter 8 verse 3 so we can find by investigation that Iona or Joanna Joanna could very likely be one and the same with this female junior they were in fact the same woman that we find in Luke chapter 8 verse 3 appears in Romans chapter 16 verse 7 because it was very prevalent that early early Jews who were out having contact within the dispersion, the Hellenized world, they would often take upon a Latin name as they traveled abroad instead of their very Jewish sounding name. And this would explain how both women of verse 7 were believers before Paul. Why were they believers before Paul? Because they were Jewish women from Judea. They were not Jewish women that were out in the dispersion. Does that make sense? So I kind of like to link all this together through the translation and the word study. Let's get into verse 8. And actually, you know, I'm now very concerned that my WhatsApp is going to blow up on me because I do have some friends that contact me um, in the faith from South Africa. I'm just messing with you guys. Chill, okay? Chill. Don't WhatsApp me to death when I get out of here tonight. Relax. This is fun. It's okay. It's okay. Verse 8. Greet... Ampilius, my beloved in Yahuwah, greet Urbanos, our helper in the Messiah, and Stachus, my beloved. Now, Ampilius is in fact Latin. Ampilius was a common slave name. So we're going to find as we look at these names that there were slaves being set free. Urbanos and Stachus are also common slave names. Now, if Paul met these men in Eastern in the eastern Mediterranean region, then I would imagine that they're just probably freed slaves, which would tell us that their masters then came to faith. Because if your master came to faith in Yahushua, is he going to keep you in chains? No, he's going to start freeing his slaves. Now, what happens if you have Roman masters of very high status that start freeing their slaves? That's called a revolution. That's called a revolution. When you start to awaken up the hierarchy to the faith and they start to set the people free, you have a revolution. What we have going on in America is nothing different than what was going on in Rome in the first century. All the power is in the top 5%, which is actually enslaving the other 95%. You think you're free, but you're really enslaved. We're enslaved into this system, right? You just try doing something of your own um, volition and you'll find how far you can get. So this is about revolution because when that top 5% start to set the people free, then the world changes. And that can only happen when men and women in the 95% wake up and become bold and courageous everywhere in the drive through on the construction site, on the street, on the sidewalk, everywhere. You just start proclaiming the truth. Everywhere. And that is what sets the captives free. It's powerful. Let's continue on in verse 10. 
Greet Apelles, approved in the Messiah. Greet those who are of Aristopulus' house. Now, Aristopulus, if you look at this guy, he's the grandson of Herod the Great. This is powerful. Do you see how the Roman fortress is crumbling in our very midst? We have the grandson of Herod the Great and the brother of Herod Agrippa, which explains the previous slave names, does it not? He comes to faith and he lets his slaves go free and they all go off following the way of the master, following the apostles, going out into the dispersion. Because if he came to faith, then it is very likely that he in fact then would free his slaves and follow the Messiah with any of his household that would follow also. This is amazing. Look at verse 11. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet them that are in the house of Narcissus who are in Yahuwah. Now, so we've got Herodian now who's come to faith. Now we've got the household of Narcissus. Now, Narcissus, if you look into history, he was a close aide to Emperor Claudius. And he was killed. He was killed by the emperor's assassins on fear that he'd influenced the whole household just as Aristopulus had influenced his whole household. We've got a bit of a mutiny going on within the Roman hierarchy as the gospel is spreading throughout that society at the top 5%. This is powerful. This is a powerful message that changes society when it's enacted properly by the people, you and me, the common people. When we move, And we really do what we are called to do in this life. You've only got one life. Let's make the most of it by being bold and courageous everywhere we go. Women rise up. Men rise up. Let's link together and proclaim together. Because where two go, if one fall, it be better than one who on his own. Because when one falls, the other can help himself up is what the Proverbs say. What does that say? Crikey, I'm my... What is, what do you got? What is, oh, is that what it is? They're like flashing t-shirts at me back there. Belly shirts. Behave yourselves, chaps. <laughs> Crying out loud. It's not Cabo San Lucas. Good grief. All right, where were we? Narcissus. I was talking about Narcissus. In fact, if you look at the history contained with Narcissus, because what happens here, I'll go back to verse 11, greet Herodian, my relative, greet them that are of the house of Narcissus who are in Yahuwah. So Narcissus, a close aide to Emperor Claudius, he was killed because the assassins killed him because he was influencing his household and they were all going to be set free and put at liberty just like Aristopulus's household was in fact but of course Roman history has us that Narcissus was committing suicide quote quote as my daughter does she does it with the whole hip movements too you know it's like yeah he committed suicide quote quote yeah right they killed him you know Princess Diana died in a car crash Quote, quote, it was an accident. You know, only two towers went down on 9-11. Quote, quote, it was an accident. It was a terrorist accident or whatever they say. I, I just ran into a bunch of people on the street yesterday and we had quite the conversation. It was very interesting. Um, anyway, moving on. Crikey. I get into a lot of trouble when I'm out and about. I really do. I have to behave myself. I really do. But, you know, a lot of caffeine and a lot of conversation goes a long way. It makes my day fun. 
So you can see that the counterfeit kingdoms of Rome and Judea are actually beginning to crumble. As I go through this 16th chapter, these counterfeit kingdoms, they're beginning to crumble as people are awakening to the true faith. Because in the wake of Yahushua's kingly and priestly line that was being rightly asserted, because we have to remember that Yahushua was from the royal households of Judea from both the lines of the kings of the Zadokite priests and of the kingly line of David going all the way back before the days of the Hasmoneans. So this is really the imperial Roman establishment was being affected by this. And you can see that the power brokers within the imperial Roman establishment were coming to faith and their households were crumbling as the slaves were being set free. What do you think about that? I think it's powerful when you really meditate on that. I mean, this would be like, you know, William and Kate coming into the faith and proclaiming the true gospel and setting all their slaves free. And you don't think they have slaves? <laughs> do you know where I was last week? I mean, really? Come on, it's modern day, modern day slavery like you wouldn't believe it in the United Kingdom. Bringing them all in from Europe, working all kinds of crazy hours on fear that if they don't do what they're said, then their papers will be taken and they'll be sent back to wherever it is, Uzbekistan and Uncle Stan and all of those places that they've come from. Seriously, there's modern-day slavery today. It's just taken different forms and different shapes. Verse 12. Greet, I was going to say Trump funnier. We have enough Trump going on, don't we? <laughs> Greet Trump honier and Trump Hosa who labor in Yahuwah. Greet the beloved Persis who labored much in Yahuwah. Again, we've got more female slaves and we even have a Persian thrown in the midst. Look at verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in Yahuwah, and his mother and mine. Of course, now we've got Rufus, who is what? He's the son of Simon of Cyrene. You know the guy who picked up the crossbeam? This is his son. This is amazing. He, his, household, his household, excuse me, they were likely fleeing from Judea due to the persecution because this Simon of Cyrene was right there, witnessed exactly what was going on as Yahushua was betrayed and crucified, picked up the crossbeam to help him. His son heard of all the tales. They became a persecuted household within Judea and now they're out of the mix and they're taking refuge refuge within the Roman community. I mean, you start adding this stuff up and you can see that these were perilous times. You started speaking up about what was really going on, the truth, and you get persecuted. You start talking about historical truth instead of sacred history and people get offended and they start calling you names to try and silence you, right? Doesn't work though, does it? Look at Mark chapter 15 verse 21 and we'll find this Rufus. And they compelled one, Simon a Cyrene, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his crossbeam. There you have it. Now we get into verse 14. Greet Asurgatus, Flechon, Hermos, Patrobos, Hermes, and the Israelite brothers who were with them, greet Philogus, and, I mean, my goodness, I mean, you've got to be careful here, you could end up, if you're not paying attention, you could be like, greet Flemboy, Herpes, Arista Blue Bulls, and Nephrotiti, I mean, it gets insane, I'm trying to read these, <laughs> my goodness. Which one was what? Who's got herpes and Aristotle's got blue balls and whose titties are what? I mean, I mean, it's crazy, these names. I mean, I've become comfortable with it over the years. You know, I can have a bit of a joke. But seriously, my goodness. I'm like, Flemboy? No, Fleglon? I mean, my goodness gracious. Greet. Yeah, let's just move on here. Um, after Olympus and all the <laughs> Israelite saints... That are with them. My, what did you put in my drink? 
But we've got more of the imperial household again that are coming to faith. Freed slave women, freed men. We've got Julia. Julia, of course, was a name found in the Roman records of a slave woman from the imperial household. We're getting people that are abdicating. Priests, kings, princes, princesses, governors, abdicating from their roles in society and following the master. This is powerful. This is people stemming from nobility and the ruling class, but the majority are their freed slaves. This is truly a revolution. This is a revolution. Look at verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The Israelite congregations of the Messiah, they greet you. Now I beg you, Israelite brothers, mark those that cause divisions and stumbling Contrary to the doctrine that you have learned and avoid them. For they are such that serve not our Savior, Yahushua the Messiah, but they serve their own carnality. And by good words and convincing speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience is reported to all men. And I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet, I would have you wise to that which is good, but simple concerning evil. And really, it is a simple life. Avoid the evil things. Turn off the TV. Turn off all of that media that bombards you with evil and wickedness. Get into the word prayer and community, the simple things, relationships with others, and guard yourself from the world and worldliness. And that really keeps you safe. It keeps you so safe. I have found just myself, you know, I have this desire to know what's going on, and I read the news, and then I'm like, you know, I need to go on like a news fast. Because it starts to diminish my soul and my spirit. And I feel my whole spirit just kind of coming down. Then I'm like, you know what? I'm not. I'm only going to read it once a week. Because otherwise it's just two and it's everywhere. And we've got, we've got so much at our fingertips. But if I spent and you spent that much time in the word and in prayer and listening to worship music. Wow, does that not empower you? There's nothing like worship music to change the atmosphere. Spiritually, things will be down and you just change the music and it's powerful because what we look at, what we listen to will affect what comes out of our mouths. So again, it's the simple things. Holy, sanctified, sanctified living. That's the way to live. And we need to avoid those things that would cause us to trip and to stumble. Look at verse 19. For your obedience is reported to all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet, I would have you wise to that which is good, but simple concerning evil things. And the Elohim of peace. He shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The unmerited favor of our Savior, Yahushua Messiah, is, I pray, to be with you. Now you have to ask the question here in verse 20. Is Paul talking about an eschatological stance here? Or is he looking more at the trials and tribulations of the Roman community? I don't think he's talking about eschatology. I think he's actually talking personally about the trials and tribulations that are coming upon the Roman community when you look back on history. Because when you think about it, the coins that actually were being minted and used at that time, they had depictions of the victorious Roman legions standing upon the neck of their enemies. So when they were you know, buying at the market, they'd be looking at these coins being reminded of how the Roman armies would literally stand upon their neck of the enemies. And they were feeling that. They were feeling that kind of, oh, 
oppression, were they not? And you know today in our society, it is being geared more and more and more so that the powers that be, whether it be those that are enforcing, are more jacked up and more militaristic to try and intimidate and remind you that you are under the boot and that you shall not rise up. So, again, history, if you're not careful, it will repeat itself. And again, we need to be a people that is aware of what happened in the past because our future can very much be determined. If we don't make the change, stand up and speak and be vocal of the faith, it could repeat itself in the days that we live. Let's look and see now, as we see in the 21st verse, Timtheos, my fellow worker, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sostipar, my relatives, they all greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in Yahweh. It's entirely possible, as we look at this, that the good doctor, in fact, is included here in the mix. Luke the physician. Because if we look here, Lucius or Lucius is actually a derivative of Luke. So it's very much a possibility that the good doctor is included here in verse 21. Look at verse 22. Three, Gaos, my host, and the whole congregation, they all greet you. Erastos, the treasurer of the city, greets you. We've got the bloody mayor involved here. He's got the keys to the city. He's come into the faith. Wouldn't that be nice? Right? Wouldn't that be nice if you had a little bit of a, you know, the mayor was actually concerned about holy, righteous living? Yeah, what do we have? Wow. (laughs) What did the mayor of Portland get caught doing? Right. Go no further. Terrible. And got away with it. But here we have a mayor that is seeking after Kedoshah, holiness. Can you see how this is infiltrated to the top, has it not? This is through prayers and the diligence of the saints bringing the gospel message up in only a few years. In only a few years when people wake up and start communicating. Because you and I, if we all start to communicate to all kinds of different people, do you know what corridors of power that you can affect? You'd be very surprised. You'd be very surprised how interconnected we all, all are. Now, verse 20... um, Three, Gaius, my host, and the whole congregation greet you. Aristos, the treasurer or the mayor of the city, greet you. And Cortus, an Israelite brother, the unmerited favor of our Savior, Yahusha the Messiah, be with you all. Though we see, consistent with what Paul's writing in verse 24, we've got to be careful of those funky monks monking with the text because it is in factually. Um, in fact, in factually, there's a good word for you. It's in fact inauthentic, verse 24, the unmerited favor of our Savior, Yahushua Messiah, be with you all. A monk put that in there. If you look back, and hopefully in most of your Bibles, it's either in italics or in square brackets because it's actually inauthentic, verse 24, and it is not included in most notable translations except for a footnote. Does anybody have verse 24 actually in their scriptures without any square brackets or italics as if it's actually there? Well, that's very That's Huh? Well, if you don't have 24, that's okay. Hopefully, if they're doing their due diligence, it's in square brackets with a footnote telling you that it's actually inauthentic. But if it's just been written right in as if it's there, then that's very disingenuous because all scholars know that that was added later by some funky monk in a bedroom. I mean... I don't understand why they don't just make that apparent for you. It doesn't, it's not in there. Oh, it's better that it not be in there. 
than it actually being there. But what should be best is that it's in there in italics or in square brackets with a sidebar note informing you so that you know all things and that you're not deceived. That's all right. We can continue. We can talk about that afterwards. So verse 24 again is inauthentic. Now let's go on to verse 24. Now to him that is able to establish you according to my gospel and the proclaiming of Yahushua the Messiah according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept hidden since, since the Olam Hazer, the, the days began. Now, verse 26, is made manifest by the holy scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting Elohim, made known to all nations for the obedience of the faith. To Yahuwah, the only wise one, be glory through Yahushua the Messiah forever and ever. Amen. You can see... This letter to the Romans, it truly is the most, the most influential letter ever written in human history. You've got everything here. You have freedom from slavery. You have households, imperial households of the Roman establishment crumbling and coming into the faith of Yahushua. You've got Romans chapter 13 setting off how a believer is supposed to interact with government, knowing that government has its restrictive perimeters, that it cannot transgress and come onto the sovereignty of the believer. But there is a certain way to interact with the entity that is honorable. So we can see here that as Paul has spent all of this time communicating, writing down this letter that is then sent by the postmaster Phoebe, who's an ambassador. She's a deacon. And then we have the apostle. We have females in, uh, as an apostle, a deacon. The empowerment of this gospel that is literally shattering the establishment of the new world order. We are seeing that this now comes forward 2,000 years into our day to teach us how to interact with the world at large. Romans teaches us how to interact, to stay as a holy, set-apart people in a sick and twisted world where we're going to have to interact with government. We're going to have to interact with high society, but we're also going to walk with those from the hedgerows, the slaves that have been set free, and there is going to be equity with man and woman because we are free and we are equal in Messiah that empowers us through the Holy Spirit to go forth and proclaim this message in this sick and twisted culture that we live. But we have the clarion call that there is one nation that you are the Israel of Elohim, Galatians 6, verse 16, that you keep the Sabbaths, that you keep the dietary requirements, that you come and celebrate the feasts and festivals of Yahuwah at his appointed time, and you forsake the sick, sun-god-worshipping system that is all around you in the nations. You ask questions for conscience sake about things that you're going to partake of and you do your diligence and you question the status quo. But ultimately you've got to remember who's your daddy. Who's your high priest? Are you looking to Yahushua, who's the high priest after the order of Malkit-Sedek? Or are you going to be deceived by those Jews who are coming down from Judea trying to get you back into the Levitical hierarchy or are you going to go on that narrow path, be empowered by the gospel and proclaim this message? I've learned a ton just by spending the time and I hope you guys have learned a ton as we go through this 16 chapters or one letter that truly is the most powerful communication written down in the history of mankind. It touches on government, 
freedom, slavery, sovereignty, how to interact with your government, with your community, with fellow believers, how Jews, Gentiles, those in the nations are to come together in one, how to eat, how to live, how to celebrate holy festivals together, what to do, what not to do. Man, and ultimately we're closing and seeing all these great women of faith rising up and leading men, and men leading other men in the power of the gospel. It really, truly is an amazing, amazing time. Do I have any questions, anything about um, this last chapter that some of you may have questions, or even comments about, or maybe even our online audience? But nothing from the South Africans, please. Nothing. Nothing. Explain obedience to the faith, because it's okay. such an abstract thought in our culture that faith is just mental ascension. But it's actually obedience to something, right? Yes, right. Well, the thing is, is we have to understand the difference between grace and mercy, because those are huge phrases that everyone throws around, but we really don't understand. Grace is what empowers you to keep the commandments in a sick and twisted world. Mercy is the withholding of Yahweh's wrath to a disobedient people. So the traditional Christian church are not under Yahweh's grace. Because if they were under Yahweh's grace, that means they would be empowered to keep the commandments of Yahweh. And they're not keeping the commandments of Yahweh because it has been told untruthfully that they've been nailed to the cross. The Christian church traditionally is not under Yahweh's grace. They are under his mercy. The withholding of just judgment deserved. But there will be a time, the tribulation, when his mercy is withdrawn and the just judgment will be taken out upon a prostituting house which is called, Come out of her, my people. But the people that are empowered by his grace are the ones that are keeping the commandments. You can see this in the book of Revelation. Those who have the testimony of the Messiah and who keep his commandments. That's grace. That's grace. So we're to be obedient, like Yahushua said, if you love me, then you keep my commandments. And as he said to the rich young ruler, well, I've done all of these things then. How do I enter into the kingdom of heaven? And he said, well, yes, great that you've done these things. He understood that actions were part of his faith, but he couldn't take that last step. And he couldn't give so that he could live. I have an online question. I was baptized as a baby. I would like to rededicate myself to Yahweh. I would like to get baptized again. Should I? Definitely you should. For sure and for certain ritual immersion is where it's at baptism mikvah oat when you have a conscious choice to do so it is a personal conscience choice yes question actually it's not a question it's a statement oh um, statement okay we have finally figured out what it is that the messiah has done away with on the tree it is the iou we owe him our lives and he has taken our place so we don't have to do that say that again it's an iou i owe him my life because i'm a sinner and he takes my place on the cross so i don't have to that's why that's an interesting way of looking at it i think is um not to discount that Um, I think we've done in past studies that what he has done away with is the book of the law that was the ordinance, the commandments written in ordinances, not the commandments written in covenant. He did away with the book of the law that was against you, which was that witness that you broke the covenant. And now, in Messiah, you're to return to covenant Torah. So, you know, it's... uh, Don't mean to split hairs, but it's important. Yes? 
Okay, but we have the online audience. They like to be involved. We like to have everybody involved. Basically, what he was trying to say is that the, the curses that Messiah took on by, by taking on the wrath of Elohim for breaking the commands. Well, that's important sinners, because where were the curses? All of the curses, they plural, all the the they're all in the book of the law. Exactly. His point was that he was nailed to the cross and took the curses that we would by the law. If Correct. He, if he had not been yes. nailed to the cross. Yes, total agreement. Thank you so much. Clarity. Clarity, thank you. And our brother in the back here just want to make reference of Acts 19, correct? About being rebaptized. Some were baptized into John. Yes, thank you. That. There we go. Rebaptized, very important. Yes. White South African in the third row back. Could you uh, expand? No, on... it's not. Okay, you sound American. Could you expand on uh, verse 24 and maybe the motive or agenda that you found why they would add that in? Because by looking at it, it doesn't seem anything wrong with the favor. Ah, that I do not know. What was their motive? What was their agenda? That's a jolly good, that would be a nice fireside discussion. I don't know. Don't know why. But it is definitely inauthentic and a disputed verse. So, Abba, Yes? One more, all right, perfect. Yeah, we already already know this, but Deborah led an army. No man would. <laughs> Thank you. There you go. There you go again. So very important as we set this into historical context because we can see Paul definitely was not the despiser of women that... He was made out in medieval times. Father, we thank you. Your word is powerful. Abba, we ask that as we are in these days, that Abba, we look to the creator, not to the shifting sands of your creation, not to the stars, the sun, and the moon, but Abba, we look unto you, Yahweh, our creator, that holds all those created things in the palm of your hand. And Abba, we know that you are our Elohim, that you lead us. Through the dark valleys, when there is no light, we still shall see, because you are our light. We do not need the sun and the moon, because we have the light of Messiah, and one day that light will replace the sun and the moon, and we, Abba, will stand in awe of your majesty daily, because you are the creator. We do not stand for the creation, but we stand for you alone, Yahuwah, in Yahushua's mighty name. Amen. Be blessed.